0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Uh, Hello, good evening. Hello. Um, Are you running away or are you coming in? Great. Cool. Welcome to all those out there. Welcome to everyone inside. Hello. Uh, This is A Night of Better Conversations, a collaboration between the School of Life and M Pavilion. And thank you to M Pavilion for having us here. We're delighted. Um, I will begin with an acknowledgement of country and then I'll uh, kick off the rest of the evening. Uh, M Pavilion, the School of Life, me and all of you here today acknowledge the Yallakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yallakut Willem are part of the Bunwarong, one of the five major language groups of the great Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. Um, And one thing that I will add, uh, I've done a lot of acknowledgements of country, they're always a little bit different. Uh, I like to add a mention of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is something that was created by a group of Indigenous Elders um, and is a call to Parliament to do a whole range of things and I recommend you look into that if you get a chance. I'm uh, Daniel Teitelbaum, and I'm here as a facilitator uh, for the School of Life. I used to be the head of content at the School of Life for a number of years, um, but went out on my own a couple of years ago to do some freelance work, uh, consulting and running workshops for businesses um, and all range of organisations using play. So that's like games, game design, um, theatre sports, Lego, all of that, and I run that with various organisations to help them grow and develop as a team. So you can find more about me at... Uh, Playfulthinking.com.au But I'm here as a facilitator for the School of Life uh, actually replacing Mike Bartlett who was uh, going to be the lovely, charming gentleman up the front here today Um, but he had ear, nose and throat surgery uh, just recently so couldn't make it, so I'm his stand-in. And I tell you that so that I apologise for relying on my notes a little bit more heavily than uh, I might otherwise. So, a night of better conversations. Um, why are you here? Probably to have the kinds of conversations that you don't get to have uh, in the day-to-day of your lives. Uh, you might, but you might want more of them. And they're the kind of conversations that make us feel like we've had a genuine connection, a real conversation, uh, the kind of communication that seems uh, further and further away from us as all of the wonderful, fantastic Literary digital technology uh, and ways of communicating with all their, uh, I guess, pitfalls and greatness, um, take us further away from the kind of conversation that we might be having here today. Uh, I'll talk, obviously, over the next hour about what we think goes into the kind of conversation that uh, you might want to have, um, the kind of things that you should be thinking about in having good, meaningful conversations. Those are things like listening well rather than talking well. Um, And I think a big part of it is also um, your expectation, what you hope to get out of the conversation. We often get into conversations um, as a transactional thing that we hope will end soon enough um, or we'll get the thing we want out of it soon enough. Uh, That is how kind of conversations happen most of the time. But we're looking for the kind of conversation that's a little bit more uh, adventurous, free-flowing, one that maybe asks us to risk more than we usually do in a conversation. A lot of you have come here with uh, friends or people you know uh, and I'm going to be encouraging you over the night to be speaking to strangers, to the other people in the room here today and I know that's also why a lot of you came, is to get a conversation with somebody you don't often get to talk to. Uh, And the wonderful thing about M Pavilion and the School of Life is the diversity of people that come here um, to enjoy the event, so uh, take advantage of that in tonight's conversation event. Cool. So... Part of this, um, uh, I guess, fact that conversation is becoming less and less, um, let's say, meaningful, intimate, or, or something in that in that realm, is a part of the fast-paced world. Uh, it asks us to uh, engage in conversations uh, that are intimately... Uh, we want to engage in conversations that are intimately more interesting um, and glowing. Uh, uh, sorry, hang on a second. I've, I've messed up. I'm going to rely on my notes a little bit more heavily, so... it's a little bit more free-flowing. So, um, our reliance on technology to communicate uh, or more often to avoid conversation has been by, uh, accompanied by a boom in social anxieties. There's a generation of young adults uh, reportedly too scared to answer their phones or to open the front door. I've spoken to teachers who talk about the growing uh, amount of anxiety in the classroom and in students when they forget their notes or lose things and it's uh, it's becoming alarming. Um, What effect is it having on our society, this growing anxiety? Well, one of the consequences is that our love stories have become more boring. In 2009, respondents to a survey used 67 words to tell the story of how they met. By 2017, that had shrunk to only 37 words, uh, probably because it doesn't take many to say, I went on Tinder and swiped right. Connection is still best achieved face-to-face because our communication is always more than the words that we use. Most of our communication is non-verbal, carried out by our body language, our tone, our facial expressions, uh, even the way we dress. Uh, We are not postmen delivering messages in a very real sense. We are the messages. And it's hard to feel any real chemistry with somebody who's in a different room or thousands of kilometres away. That's why we're here tonight, to make the sort of connections you can't make on the screen. Tonight's content will be slanted towards romantic connections, but its lessons should be equally applicable to all kinds of connections, from making new friends, strengthening bonds with colleagues and family, uh, and uh, just getting to know somebody that you've met at a function that neither of you really want to be at. If you're not looking for any kind of love, I encourage you to simply enjoy the thrill of connection without purpose. Let's take the advice of the British philosopher Michael Oakeshott, who said that conversation has no determined course. We do not ask what it is for, it is an unrehearsed intellectual adventure. I'll read that again actually, it's a really good one. It has no determined course, we do not ask what it is for, and conversation should be an unrehearsed intellectual adventure. Tonight, uh, this adventure will play out across three courses. The first one will be about making the leap. So overcoming that huge gap between not talking to somebody and talking to somebody. Uh, We'll then talk about how to be attractive. So that is how to have the kind of conversation that makes you charming and alluring rather than the opposite. And then we'll talk thirdly about building connection. So once we're there in the sweet spot, things are going well, how do we really build a meaningful connection? First course, making the leap. So, we're going to start this evening with some basic probability. Uh, How how likely are you to get lucky tonight? Uh, In her book, The Mathematics of Love, mathematician Hannah Fry uses a paper from another mathematician, Peter Backus, to calculate our chances of making a romantic connection. The paper is called Why I Don't Have a Girlfriend. Uh, And the answer probably became clear to Bacchus not just through the sums that he worked out in in this paper about mathematics and love, but also the fact that he was spending all his night writing a paper about mathematics and love and not actually going out to the bar to meet anybody. But in his paper, Bacchus sets out to find out out if there were intelligent, socially advanced women of the same species out there for him to date. His calculations went like this. How many women are there who live near me? And he's in London and he says approximately four million. How many are likely to be of the right age range? He says about 20%, which leaves him with 800,000 prospects. How many are likely to be single? We'll say around half, so that's down to 400,000. How many are likely to be attractive to him? Uh, He says 5%, which might be a little bit harsh, um, but leaves him with about 5,000. How likely are they to find him attractive? He also says 5%, so I guess that's fair. Um, and gets him down to about 260, and he says, how many am I likely to actually get along with? And his answer is 10%. So that means there's about 25 or 26 women in his area, that uh, in the whole of London, that he would be able to actually have a relationship with. So um, Hannah Fry, who writes The Mathematics of Love and refers to this paper, she says that he's being actually a little bit picky. Um, she does her own calculations and suggests that uh gets to a number that says there might be actually as many as 1,000 in the area for him. Um, Anyway, uh, Bacchus gets married within three years of writing the paper, so I guess he he was right or wrong, I don't know. Um, But those are the mathematics of love and the numbers that kind of, statistics that might seem overwhelming or, or scary. Hannah Fry's main argument in the book is that we should probably relax our criteria for our potential partners and for our potential friends in order to access a much larger pool of people. Fry quotes one man's deal-breaker from the dating website OkCupid. Okay so this is a list of deal-breakers he has for his potential partner. Uh, one, uh, can't needlessly kill spiders, um, can't have tattoos that you can't see without a mirror, um, can't discuss Facebook in real life, um, can't consider yourself a happy person, uh, and can't think that world peace is actually a goal of some sort. So that's his deal-breakers uh, on the on the website. and. Um, Feed that list into Baxter's equation and we'll probably end up with zero people. So how much do our preemptive dating criteria usually harm our chances of finding love? Here, Hannah Fry uh, touches on one of the main obstacles to making a connection with another human being. We assume we won't like them or that they won't like us. To put it another way, we assume that other people are simply too different. It's the fear of difference that lies behind the reason many of us fear having to talk to people at all, and that's shyness. We might define shyness as the acute awareness of the difference between ourselves and others. Predictably, shyness tends to be most acute when differences loom largest. In our shy moments, it can be almost impossible to get past this sense of difference. What can help is to think of us each as having two identities, our local identity and our universal identity. Our local identity are all the things that uh, define us as we might put it on a bio or something like that. Age, sex, location, social background, um, parenthood, religion, our career, or whether we're a tea or coffee drinker. These things aren't unimportant, but perhaps we focus on these local things way too much. These are in combination with all the things we feel what make us unique or different to others. When it comes to meeting other people, however, it's our universal identity that we should be focusing on. The universal identity is composed of the things that everyone has in common, whatever the, uh, whatever the specifics of their local identity. So these include things like the fact that we all have problematic families, or that we've all loved, or that we've all hated, or that we've all been idiotic or that we have bodies that occasionally embarrass or disappoint us or that we have ambitions and we have anxieties and if you prick us we will bleed these are our universal identities the things that we all share in some way or another even though the local identity might be different on all these things it isn't always possible to begin a conversation with someone else's local identity but we know enough to ask something like so what's the most who's the most annoying member of your family or what are you most looking forward to right now or what's something you regret hoping the answer won't be coming over to talk to you. The point is that we have much in common with the whole of humanity, no matter how Twitter might try to persuade us otherwise. So... Uh, That's, I guess, a little bit of an intro into how we might make the leap. Now we're going to, in a moment, move into conversations with each other. And I'm gonna prompt you with a couple of questions. But before, we're also going to give you a, a conversational technique. So this is something you can, I guess, think about, not just the content of what you're talking about, but the way you approach the conversation. And this technique is called questioning assumptions. The art of conversation requires us all to examine our assumptions. This is difficult. We absorb them from the culture we've grown up in. We can't turn them off like a light switch. So what can we do? For a start, we have to understand how assumptions and prejudices affect our relationships and our conversations. Throughout your first conversation, consider what assumptions you have about the person you're talking to. Then, after the conversation, think about whether those assumptions have changed or how they might be inaccurate. So before you start the conversation, as you stand across from your conversational partner or in your conversational group, take 15 seconds just to think about the very simple assumptions you might make about the other person. You don't have to judge yourself too harshly about making them. Um, feel free to allow those assumptions to pass through your mind. Have the conversation, and then after the conversation think, were those assumptions correct? How were they wrong, and uh, in which way am I inaccurate in those assumptions? So that's our technique. But we're discussing a uh, uh, conversation and particularly making the leap. And so I'm about to pose you two questions. And what I'd love you to do is uh, jump up and get into groups of two, three or four, no more than four, uh, no less than two. Um, and uh, have a conversation about these two questions. And please, uh, you, you can in this first one, if you want to stay with the person that you came with, you may. But I do invite you to... Uh, Step out and have a conversation with somebody who you haven't met yet. All right, question one. What do you find most difficult about talking to strangers? And question two. When have your assumptions about someone been proven wrong? Oh, so we're really getting right into it there, aren't we? Um, What do you find most difficult about talking to strangers and when have your assumptions about someone proven to be wrong? So what I'd love to do as I talk over a few of you... Um, is hear from a couple of people how that conversation went and maybe uh, what some of your answers were to our two questions. What do you find most difficult about talking to strangers and when have your assumptions about somebody been wrong? Who'd like to share some of the thoughts or insights that came from their conversation? You can yell. Go. Oh, oh, sorry. No, all right.
0: Just pipe back down. Mm -hmm. Um, What was my... Oh, I said that... um my own emotions were the hardest thing about, because depending on the day, I'll sometimes be really extroverted, I'll sometimes be really introverted, and so mm. I will get in my own way. And actually, that was some of the other responses as well.
1: Right. So it's the emotional energy that it takes, or that sometimes your just energy isn't there to to step into that and uh, have a conversation.
0: I uh, I guess <clears throat> you know if you had a long day at work, or just I know you've done something that was a bit different, and then you have to meet a stranger, and sometimes it's you kind of just think, oh, I'm really tired now, so I don't have the energy. Mm. And you just, you get in your own way rather than just going there and not thinking about it mm. and then just meeting someone.
1: Mm. Great. Who, who else mentioned tiredness? People say energy? Did anyone? Yeah, a few. You can just show me your hands. It, I won't call on you. No, a few. Right, anyone else would like to give us an insight from the conversation they had? Way back there. One and then I'll do it right there. Oh, yeah, go for it. Uh, so I think... A big one for us was uh, the fear of being judged and misunderstood, mm. um, that one came up. Yep. So yeah, so you kind of tentative about what you reveal in case you've you got to kind of self-check everything, is this something I'm going to be judged for or not? Mm. Yeah. Yep. Which and is exhausting. Yeah, and mm.
0: as, as a result, perhaps, uh, you portray yourself as
1: less authentic or genuine mm. when you're holding back as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely, more reserved. Cool, got one more insight?
0: Um, mine actually melded together. <laughs> that uh, when you meet strangers, if you're in your headspace, you're not actually meeting them, so you prejudge them anyway. Mm. Uh, but if you're actually open to meeting that person, you're less likely to actually make a judgement mm. and find that you're wrong.
1: Mm. And who, you, who did that? Did people do that exercise before the conversation where you checked in and asked yourself your assumptions and then checked in at the end? A few, yeah? And was it useful? Yeah? Did, were you wrong? About your assumptions yeah getting some nods some nods great that's the point you're meant to get to (laughs) Um, excellent well that was all about making the leap kind of overcoming that first hurdle to be able to talk to somebody now we're going to uh, start course two which is how to be attractive how do we once we've made the leap and are in the conversation have the energy and might be ready to reveal our authentic selves have stopped judging the other person to some extent how can we be attractive in this conversation So there's a book by Laura Mutcher called Love Factually. Who has a Christmas, just as a side note, who has a Christmas ritual to watch Love Actually every year? Put your hands up. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, there's a lot of you, especially at my workplace. Um, Laura Mutcher's book Love Factually. Explores the idea of attractiveness. What is it that we want from a partner above all else? The list includes uh, a few of the obvious items, uh, wealth, physical attractiveness, um, the right age, uh, but there are also less predictable criteria such as emotional stability, maturity, self-awareness, humor, and kindness. Uh, The final item might actually be the most important. A survey of 10,047 people across 37 countries found that kindness and understanding was ranked as the most important by both men and women um, as the the most important criteria or quality of a potential partner. This was followed by intelligence, health and uh, an exciting personality. Um, so let's uh, imagine what we uh, want. To, let's imagine we want to make ourselves attractive to somebody else. We're on a first date with a potential partner or friend, and all of this can apply to friendship as well. Um, and essentially, it's an audition. We need to demonstrate that we are a viable candidate for a prized position as their friend or lover. How do we do this? The primary mistake we make in these situations is to think that we need to be impressive. What we imagine we might need to do to attract the attention of others is, to, uh, is heavily weighted towards talking about things like success, strength, and our own happiness. But the truth is, strangely and redemptively, very different. One of the most charming things that we can ever do in social contexts is to share our failure. We love to hear disaster stories in which other people embarrass themselves, expose some fatal flaw, or generally fail to accomplish something. This isn't necessarily because we're all bad people, but rather it's a sign that we are all, in our own way, suffering, and that we want to hear from others, more than anything, that we're not alone in our suffering. We all need the external evidence that the problems that we face, we don't face alone. And with that in mind, how are we to pass our first date audition? Uh, We can identify two central priorities. Firstly, we need to prove that we have a good relationship with our feelings. Failure and vulnerability may charm, but for them to be attractive, we need to demonstrate that we can talk about them in a sane, self-aware manner. Chiefly, what makes us attractive as a potential partner is the degree to which we can recognize our own failings and stay calm, self-possessed, and confident about them. It's very seductive to indicate that we have the best possible relationship with our shadow side. Intelligent enough to be troubled, self-aware enough to realize it, and strong enough not to be destroyed by it. And what about our partner? What do we want from them? Laura Mucha points out that we might be wrong when it comes to thinking what we think we know about what we want from a partner. Our hunt for love or connection is very much influenced by social norms, friends, and family. We're not really making the important decisions ourselves. Doing so is essential because our lives will be shaped by these relationships. Aristotle believed that choosing the wrong partner or friend could thwart us on our way to being a good person. Ultimately, what we, uh, we learn more about ourselves through others and the wrong partner might teach us the wrong lessons. That's what Aristotle thought. The other reason we uh, should be careful in choosing our friends and partners is the act of making a decision actually changes us. Pythagoras thought that life was measured out by the choices we make, whereas existentialists like Sartre thought that with every decision, we're not just choosing what to do, but who we are to become. So much suggests, instead of asking what we find attractive in a potential partner, we should instead be asking, who do I want to be? So that's about being attractive. It's about failure, having control and calm around our uh, shortcomings, a kind of solid relationship to our shadow side and that emotional maturity to talk confidently about it. We're about to jump into a conversation that will touch on these ideas. But uh, before we do, as with every segment, I'm going to give you another technique in conversation. And in this technique is all about watching yourself. In her parenting manual, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read, brackets, and your children will be glad that you did, Philippa Perry notes that the way we converse is greatly influenced by the way our parents listen to us. If communication was one way, our parents telling us what to do but never listening to us, then we might end up with diaphobia, a fear of dialogue. The solution is to become a detective of your own behaviour in conversation. Do you avoid uh, wherever possible? Do you find it hard to be told things? Are you combative? In this next conversation, be aware of how you are conducting yourself. Are you performing to an audience or are you talking uh, or are you only talking because you want something rather than the pleasure of the conversation? Our two questions that I'm going to pose to you now, and once again, please uh, find somebody new. Don't uh, have the conversation with the same people you just spoke to. Get up, move around the space and find somebody new to have your next conversation with. So question one what sort of conversationalist are you? Um, And how would you like to change the way you engage in conversation? And question two, what is something that is wrong with you as a person that you feel able to reveal honestly and without panic? Okay, so question one, what sort of conversationalist are you? A bit of a uh, diagnosis of your uh, conversational strengths and pitfalls. And question two, what is something that is wrong with you as a person, but make sure it's something you can reveal honestly and without panic? I'll give you ten minutes, jump up, find somebody new, and jump into some conversation. Okay. How was that? How did we find that... Yes, I know I know it is ironic that I am interrupting conversation in an event about conversation, but I must. So if you could please finish up your conversations. We'll get on to the third and final course. But first, I'd like to hear from... Uh, you about the two questions we asked the first was what sort of conversationalist are you and the second what is something wrong with you as a person that you could speak honestly about so you don't have to answer those questions to the whole group now but any insights thoughts or uh, things that came from the conversation you just had didn't expect that. right yeah so yeah. as in it, your assumption of the person didn't match the floor that they shared with you is that what you're saying uh, yeah I yeah no, i mean not to yeah, put words yeah. in your mouth but yeah okay cool very interesting. That's great. Any others? Any other thoughts? Sorry, I heard a. Oh, yep. Oh. Please do. Sorry, just so hang on. We need you. to amplify you. Uh, the th- the thing about uh, failings being attractive, I mean, yeah, you got to moderate that a bit, right? So there's some <laughs> failings that are, tra- like, if, you know, right. if you're a um, kind of unrepentant serial killer, and I feel terrible. <laughs> I feel terrible about it, but I just can't stop. But, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely true, definitely. And, uh, and um, yeah, I guess it's... Maybe there's a sweet spot. But we want to find it authentically, I guess, as well. Yeah, not an l- extensive laundry list. Yeah. one Another comment? We'll get one more. Three is the magic number. Yes. Oh,
0: sorry. I saw her hand go out before yours. <laughs>
1: oh, we can do four. Yes.
0: Um, I said that... Um Bit of an over explainer, like I talk a lot and I over explain everything, Mm. and it's really annoying for the other person that's listening. They're like, just shut up, (laughs) (laughs) stop talking. And Uh, that's something I need to work on.
1: How was it to share that in the conversation?
0: Um, They asked me to explain that, and I was like,
1: (laughs) 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 Ah, that's hilarious. Okay, great. And we'll get our last one.
0: Um, it came up quite consistently in our group that um, we felt that we were much better at asking questions and, you know, we're able to keep conversations going, but how much of that also was maybe a bit of a defense mechanism to not have the spotlight turned on onto us.
1: Mm. Mm, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, So we're going to jump into our third and final course. We are going to go about 10 minutes over today, so um, I apologise for that. Uh, But, yep, letting you know now. Um, Our third course is building connection. So the first was about making the leap, overcoming that obstacle to first talking to somebody, then making ourselves attractive paradoxically by talking about our shortcomings. And now we're going to talk about building connection. For most of us, uh, what the idea of connection will lead us to is that initial spark, the beginning of a longer story. Most screen romances, for example, tend to only focus on this part of the story, the obstacles uh, to two perfect souls forming a perfect union. For centuries, we have been greatly influenced by the romantic model of love, whereby we need to feel that there is a perfect person for us, a soulmate. In this model, any flaw or hiccup in the relationship is seen as a betrayal of this ideal. By the standards of our model, uh, our own relationships are almost all damaged and unsatisfactory. There is, of course, an alternative perspective, harking back to ancient Greece the classical model. This model, while it says we should love the good in our partner, accepts that no one ever fully understands anyone else and that there must be some compromise. It believes that we have to learn how to sustain good relationships. The classic model understands the real challenge of love is not finding the partner, but learning to tolerate them. Indeed, one of the ways we can avoid going mad with anger when dealing with those closest to us um, is remembering that they are deeply flawed individuals, and paradoxically, that's exactly why we might love them. The theory of weakness of strength, uh, which you can find more about on a YouTube video, uh, the School of Life YouTube channel um, proposes that every strength an individual has necessarily brings with it a corresponding weakness for example if our friend is always late this might be because they are also very relaxed if they lack imagination it might be because they are wonderfully grounded if they are overly defensive it might be because they care so much about getting things right People's annoying qualities are intimately connected to the things we admire in them. So how can we build from an initial connection towards better understanding our potential partner? We could start by listening to them. There's a sense that listening to other people is going out of fashion. In online discourse, many uh, take pride in not listening to voices that disagree with them. We mute, we unfollow, we block, and we cancel. Let's consider why listening to other people might seem so painful. Firstly, uh, people are incredibly boring. Each of our lives has amazing richness within it, but what tends to happen within most conversations is we quite deliberately avoid talking, avoid talking about anything with any substance. Secondly, we are genuinely bad at listening. This is because of where, uh, this is because of where uh, we assume the fun is to be located in a conversation, chiefly the bits when we are talking. When we think of listening, we tend to imagine a passive activity, but good listening is a very active process. It requires skill, uh, and its effects can be huge. Our roles as listeners to help our conversation partner tell their stories better. In short, a good listener is a good editor. What we need to do as listeners is a version of what editors do at a publishing house for their authors. We must listen, but we must also shape, tease out, cut out, and emphasize, all in the name of getting the latent really good story to emerge from our companion's mind. There are essentially six moves that a good listener can make when, talking, when taking in someone else's story. Number one, get a strong idea of what the underlying story your companion is narrating is really about. Uh, they might be puzzled themselves. They might not quite know the point. So see if you can get a strong idea of what is the real uh, underlying story here. Two, uh, stop them from digressing. Say things like, so a minute ago you were saying that. Bring them back to the last coherent and emotionally alive part of the story. Three, be extremely interested so as to focus their own attention on the story that they're telling. Make eye contact, exude warmth and lean forward. Four, draw them away from numb surface details to deeper emotional realities. Ask, what did that feel like for you? Five, allow for the uh, unusual and the weird. Use signs that suggest an open mind. Say, go on, and you're not to judge. Sorry, say things like go on. Um, You're not a judge, you're a friend. And finally, give them time. So that is avoid the uh, motions of impatience um, and things like that. So those are the six things. I'll actually run through them very quickly one more time for you. Get a strong idea of what the underlying story is, stop them from digressing with questions that bring them back to the point, be extremely interested, and you can show this with eye contact and warmth and leaning in, Um, draw them away from the surface details by asking questions that go emotionally more deep, Uh, allow for the unusual and the weird by encouraging them to go to those places, and give them time. So... This sort of listening is useful at all points in a relationship, in friendships, with colleagues, with partners, with everybody in the whole world. Um, And we're gonna see now if we can put it into practice. So our technique uh, to add is technique three, conversational crossroads. You'll notice that asking questions is crucial to the role of being a good listener, and yet we often forget to do so. It's through the questions we ask that we can guide a conversation from the superficial towards more meaningful territory. Questions such as why was that and how did that feel can be very helpful. So we should remember that at any point in a conversation, we are presented with a crossroads at which we can choose to continue the small talk or ask the right question to reach for something deeper. Take turns asking the following questions. Once you've asked yours, concentrate on teasing out what the other person is really excited or bothered by. Focus all your efforts on extracting their story like a great editor rather than butting in with a story of your own. So, in a moment you're going to jump up, find somebody new and start your conversation, your third and final conversation. And the two questions that you'll be discussing. Number one, what is something you always fear being asked? besides that question. And question two, what is something you wish you could talk about more? So something you fear being asked and something you wish you could talk about more. So once again, find somebody new, find a little corner of M Pavilion and I'll give you 10 minutes to have your final conversation. Okay. So we're gonna wrap up now. I'm gonna hear from one or two of you about the conversation you just had. I'll recap. What we discussed today and I'll plug the rest of the stuff I want to tell you about. So, anyone would like to share an insight, something, a thought that came from the conversation you just had? Um, being probably one of the elder citizens in the room, I found it really interesting talking to people of a different generation and how similar those insecurities mm. are, even though they may be expressed in different comments. Yeah, great. That's, Is that a fair comment? Yeah. That's um, comforting to realise or alarming?
0: Um, Tad of
1: both. Tad of both, good. <laughs> Chocolate and salt. One more? One more comment. Would like to share? Final? Yes.
0: Um, my one, they're sort of combined, uh, but I fear being asked about my partner when they gender them. Uh Because as a bisexual person, and when you're meeting someone for the first time, they'll often be like, oh, do you have a husband or a boyfriend? Mm. And then I'm like, when I'm dating a woman, I'm like, do I have to then out myself? Do I want to do this person? Mm. Do I have to have that conversation? Because it just annoys me on a deeper level that they're going to come in with this assumption. Mm. And then I have to have that conversation or I'm put in that spot. Mm. So again, it's something I wish that I could talk about more, I guess. Is there
1: anything from tonight that uh, you felt might equip you for? confronting that situation differently or better or for you better um
0: well i always try and come in a, into it with like the understanding of where they're coming from mm. like maybe it's uh, it's their personal background it could mm. be class it could be generational it could be anything mm. and you know coming at that with understanding mm, yeah. cool
1: and the second thing didn't that you say? It. Oh right. that was it. That was it was all together. Okay, great. Oh you, you want to talk about it more and you fear being asked that question. Yeah. Oh, well I, w- cool. I wish I could get it out there before the question got mm. asked almost. Mm, mm. Or
0: I just wish they'd just say like partner. Partner. And, and not yeah. Or just yeah you know. And they someday. Yeah. Oh yeah, cool. that'd be nice.
1: Mm. Great. Thank you for sharing. Uh, unless anyone else wants to Really Desperate to would love to, absolutely love to. Great. Um, so thank you for being here tonight. It was a pleasure to have you all here having conversations. I hope uh, you got a taste of uh, the kind of conversations you might like to have more of and some of the techniques and ideas that could help you get there and have the deeper conversations that you'd like to have. Um, a little bit of a recap. we, In first course, we discussed making the leap, so overcoming that initial barrier to talking to somebody else. And <clears throat> And part of that is checking our own assumptions. What is it that we expect from the conversation and maybe our expectations and assumptions are a little bit dim or low. Um, and how can we enter into a conversation that maybe focuses on the universal identity, the things that we all have in common, though our local identities might be very, very different. Then we talked about being attractive, how to, uh, once you've made the leap, have a conversation that, um, yeah, makes you attractive to the other person. And we looked at paradoxically, instead of talking about how impressive you are, focusing on your shortcomings, um, but uh, a tempered version, perhaps, that uh, includes the authenticity and honesty of all your shortcomings, but shows a maturity of, um, of an awareness about them. And then third, we spoke about building connection, and how do you actually <clears throat> go all the way to make that connection a meaningful one? And we spoke about listening, listening well, active listening, um, the various things you might need to do to do that uh, and how to ask the right questions to get your conversation partner going in the direction that is engaging and interesting um, as a kind of editor would of an author. Uh, the School of Life runs these classes all the time uh, out of St Kilda. We actually have a three hour version of this experience all about how to have better conversations. Uh, uh, who's actually uh, first School of Life experience here today? Oh, a few of you, wonderful. Um, go to theschooloflife.com.au. You'll find, I guess, a range of materials and resources, writings, YouTube videos, etc. But our in-person events are really the best and the most fun part of it. And we touch on all things in work, love, relationships, the self. Anything, really. Um, but we look at it from the perspective. Uh, the School of Life likes to have these conversations, these questions about big themes in our life, but with other people, particularly with strangers, um, with the right kinds of questions for us to discuss, and of course, drawing on uh, all the great ideas from throughout history, across the humanities and the arts and social sciences and etc., uh, and seeing how we can draw those great ideas into our modern world. That's it. Um, Thank you for coming along. Thank you to M Pavilion. Uh, You can find out more about me at playfulthinking.com.au if you're so inclined. But otherwise, thanks for coming and have a beautiful evening. Thank you. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations
0: about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.